Welcome to Radio KBPV, Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, a podcast about the history of southwestern Alberta, presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. Well, hello and welcome back to Radio KBPV. This is Ranger Gord Tolton speaking to you. And we're going to have another Frontier Canadian Recollections from our curator, Farley Wuth, our historian uh, impresario of the Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. And he's going to talk to us today about outlaws. Outlaws. That's a strange thing for Farley to talk about. You usually don't hear him talking about bank robberies or stagecoach drivers or anything like that. Farley did a column in November 27, 2019, in our local paper, Shooting the Breeze, when she did speak of the flamboyant appearance of the outlaw. So So just what is the outlaw? Well, just listen in and you will hear. First, I'm going to just print, I'm just going to read Farley's column verbatim. And the outlaw is something that I have actually been uh, very interested in myself as a historian over the years. So as we go through the column, I will probably inject a few things that I've known uh, about the outlaw over the years and a few things that I could probably uh, add to Farley's wonderful research. And as an added bonus, we actually have a copy of, oh, I'm giving it away. That's all right. There will be a few things that will, uh, I think, will will surprise you. So pull your hats down over your heads and pull that bandana up over your face because it's time to hear about the outlaw. The Flamboyant Appearance of the Outlaw The written press in southwestern Alberta has, for several generations now, been the mainstay of local and regional news. Their editors and reporters have served as valued members of the community. Yet early in our local history, there was one outspoken newspaper that adeptly and very vigorously stirred local opinion in regard to a variety of political and social issues. Although now largely forgotten, at the time, it made quite a public impact. One newspaper made a very brief yet memorable public appearance under the name of The Outlaw. It flourished for just six short issues during the late spring of 1896. Its brief tenure was timed with the Dominion election held that year. 
Its motto, written just below the masthead in both Latin and English, curtly summarized its contempt for, for the world. With malice towards all and charity to none. The newspaper took a very critical view of Canadian politics, the ranching frontier, local churches, and the very pioneers who inhabited the area. Virtually nothing was left unscathed by the commentary of this early venture in journalism. The first targets of the paper's commentary were all of the candidates running in that spring's election. The outlaw took a dim view of both liberal Frank Oliver and conservative Thomas Cochran, accusing both of them of undue election influence. Votes collected locally, it was alleged, were due to the fact that the hotel was closed and liquor was being served elsewhere. The paper claimed that voters were being publicly bribed and that neither candidate had any guiding morals. Cochrane collected more votes in the Pincher Creek area, but Oliver ended up winning the seat in Parliament. The name of Sir John E. Macdonald, Canada's father of Confederation and first Prime Minister of Canada, who had passed away just five years earlier, was the only name beyond reproach by the outlaw. Every other political name, including those of Prime Minister Charles Tupper and his opponent, Wilfrid Laurier, was fair game. None lived up to the standard expected. The outgoing Prime Minister was accused of ignoring qualified doctors from Lethbridge and Pincher Creek for federal appointments, simply because they fell out of political favour with the party in power. According to the outlaw, the patronage list went on for miles. The newspaper asserted that all federal positions in the local post offices and the Department of Interior, which then had authority, had authority with agricultural and First Nations, and the judicial system were all subject to being politically suspect. According to the outlaw, one could not get a job with any large corporate business unless they towed the political line or primed their situation with the unfettered distribution of liquor. The outlaw also unfortunately took a dim view of organized religion and attacked many of the established churches that dotted the ranchy frontier, taking a much more independent spiritual stand on most issues. The paper did not flavor the traditional views, timetables, and places of worship of those churches. The paper asserted, as was the alleged case with the politicians, that too much political power was held in the hands of church officials. Most of the businessmen in the local communities across the Canadian prairie frontier were viewed as serving only their own interests or being in the hip pockets of the politicians. The commentary was the same. Whether the businessmen came from Pincher Creek, Fort McLeod, Lethbridge, or Cardston. The weekly Lethbridge News was accused of not reporting on the news at all. And the well established McLeod Gazette was criticized as being the voice of only the local ranching industry without any independent editorial line. The outlaw certainly was not in the political mood to follow anyone's leadership. One has to read the original paper that was written in its caustic language to get the true flavor of the political axes that were ground at the offices of the outlaw. In many instances, the material cannot be safely reprinted. 
The outlaw was published in the remote countryside of the recently surveyed Picani First Nation Reserve. The editor claimed he had set up shop at Scott's Cooley, located some 16 miles east of Pincher Creek. Perhaps he thought, given some of his inflammatory comments, that such a remote location would be safer than one in either the towns of Fort McLeod or in Pincher Creek. Staffing included a number of people dedicated to speaking their minds and bucking the political trends of the time. E. Cholus Miller was listed as editor-in-chief, with John Cowdery as first assistant and Hoffman Hunter as second assistant. Charles H. Baker was the business manager, and this must have been a sorry job because the outlaw had very little advertising revenue. And William Black, under the alias of Lavender William, presented the political commentary in poetry form. Of significant historical interest is the fact that Cowley area rancher Fred W. Godsall, born 1853, died 1935, was listed as one of the news correspondents. How he got mixed up with the paper is anyone's guess. Perhaps given that Godsall was a literary man, he simply wanted a platform for his many letters to the editor. The final issue of the outlaw was noted in its own words as follows, and quote, Died at Scotts Cooley, Alberta, at 4 p.m. Tuesday, 30th of June, 1896. The outlaw, deeply regretted, unquote. The outlaw's publication may have been short in duration, but it certainly was outspoken while it lasted. Well, that was wonderful. That was Farley's story about the outlaw. Now, this is Ranger Gord back, and we're going to give you a little bit of uh, context into this uh, period of the 1890s and the 1896 election and some of the principles involved. Now, the outlaw's period of time and reason for existing was to comment on and try to influence the Alberta district in the 1896 federal election. And to set up the 1896 federal election, we need to look at the 1891 federal election. Several years of, of tumult for Canada. March 5th, 1891, Sir John E. Macdonald was re-elected, and this was after 24 years on the scene as the first Prime Minister of Canada, and several years before that, as one of the Fathers of Confederation in trying to put the Union together. Out of those 24 years, MacDonald had only been out of office four years during the Liberal government of Sir Alexander Mackenzie. Whoa there, sorry folks, I just have to jump in there. A uh, slight correction. Alexander Mackenzie was indeed the Liberal Prime Minister of Canada from 1873 to 1878. However, he was never knighted and was never a Sir. There was a Sir Alexander Mackenzie, but that title belongs to the explorer, Alexander. But from 1878 on, it had been his show. And it had been not without controversy. The West had been brought into Confederation. Um, as a territorial known as the uh, Northwest Territories 
out of which later would be carved the provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, as well as the northern territories that we know today. Of course, through those years, we'd had the, uh, the Red River Rebellion and Northwest Rebellions that had been very contentious. We'd had um, some spotted uh, settlement of Saskatchewan and Alberta, but nowhere near what folks thought should happen. In those years, and you, if we think that representation of the West is bad now, in those years, um, Alberta, for instance, had only been represented by one member of parliament, and that had been an American by the name of D.W. Davis. And you can hear more about Davis on one of our Talking Tombstones editions that we did earlier in 2019. Davis would uh, resign to become collector of customs for the Yukon during the Klondike era, and that meant the Alberta district would be contested. Now, it probably didn't mean that much nationally, but locally it meant quite a bit. Whether the West would be either in the liberal conservative realm or whether it would be into the realm of uh, settlement versus the established ranchers. And so it was uh, going to be very contentious locally. Now, MacDonald himself in 1891, just two months after winning the last election in which he had ran on the old flag, the old policy, the old leader, Sir Johnny MacDonald took to his bed in May of 1891, and after four days with a cold, suffered a stroke. Another stroke hit him again on June the 6th of 1891, and after just uh, less than two months of his latest mandate, uh, the old chieftain was dead, having died in office. Now, it wasn't easy to find a replacement for him. The uh, most obvious replacement would have been his justice minister, Sir John David Thompson, a judge from Nova Scotia. But religion was a thing in those days, um, in elections, and Sir John David Thompson was a Catholic, and that was seen by the party and by the national electorate, believe it or not, as a detriment. We don't even think about these things today, so it's good to know how far we've come. So instead, the Conservative Party and the caucus looked to its Senate, and they picked Sir John Abbott, an appointed Senate, a former lawyer for the Canadian Pacific Railway, to become its Prime Minister. Abbott's, it was a good thing he was in the Senate because he probably never would have been elected because one of his mottos was, I hate politics. Now, Abbott was a caretaker PM. Uh, he definitely intended to only be in there long enough for the, uh, the Conservative Party to find another palatable candidate. And that was fortunate because Abbott was dying of brain cancer at the time. And he again resigned before his death. And lo and behold, who was chosen? Sir John David Thompson. So they could have saved a little bit of time. Now Sir John David was a, uh, was a firebrand and was considered one of the hot uh, new candidates to, to, uh, to take that office. And from all ch charges, he probably took this quite ably. The problem was Sir John also wasn't in good health. 
and he, like Sir John A. Macdonald, also passed away in office, actually in England while attending a conference with Queen Victoria. That left a, a third Prime Minister to come along to succeed Sir John, and that was Sir Mackenzie Bowell, another uh, candidate from the Senate. So these are good civics leaders that you uh, don't necessarily have to be a member of the Parliament to be the Prime Minister of Canada. You just have to be chosen by the ruling party. So that's two Prime Ministers chosen from the Senate within a few years, and it's never happened since. Bowl proved so popular within his own party, his own caucus ended up walking out on him. So that's sort of losing confidence, and finally we came to Sir Charles Tupper last of the old chieftain's four immediate successors. So within four to five years, we went through four prime ministers looking for uh, who, who would assume the, uh, the throne from in the Conservative Party from Sir John A. Macdonald. And now a little bit on Sir Charles Tupper. Now as for Sir Charles Tupper, it's too bad that the Conservative Party didn't choose him in the first place after Macdonald's death because he probably could have been one of the great Prime Ministers of Canada. As it was, and not to bury the lead at the end of the, uh, the story here, he would actually serve as Prime Minister only 69 days, currently the shortest Prime Ministerial term in Canadian history. Well, in that three months, Sir Charles Tupper brought to his office a wealth of experience from 40 years of eventful and distinguished public service. He was 75 years old at that time and had served as the Canadian High Commissioner in London. When he was induced by the colleagues to lead the government at a time when the Conservative Party's morale was very low. Born in Amherst, Nova Scotia, Sir Charles was a doctor, a medical doctor, when he entered provincial politics and won a memorable victory in Cumberland County. Young and inexperienced, he defeated the famous and politically powerful Liberal leader Joseph Howe. Tupper became Provincial Secretary of Nova Scotia when his party gained power in 1857. He sat in opposition from 1860 to 1863. The Conservatives swept the province in the 1863 election and the following year Tupper became the Premier of Nova Scotia, to date the only provincial premier to ever become Prime Minister, although that is contentious because Nova Scotia wasn't officially a province of Canada at that point in time. Now Tupper was also noted as being a father of Confederation, and he forced the idea of Confederation through the Nova Scotia Legislature and approved the uh, union with the Canadian nation in 1867. In the provincial elections that, that followed, Tupper was the only confederationist elected from Nova Scotia. Within the next 16 years, he held uh, several portfolios within Sir Johnny Macdonald's government and pushed for, forward numerous nation-building ideas, and he had been concerned with railway transportation, conciliating sect sectarian differences within the provinces. In 1883, he was made High Commissioner in London. And in 1887, Sir John called him back to the Ministry of Finance and to help with that general election in that year. He stayed in office one year, then returned to London until recalled in 1896 as Secretary of State. Now, Tupper came back to a very broken party 
and needing to run an election that was essential once the parliament had run its statutory course. Succeeding Mackenzie Bowl, Tupper became prime minister and fought the election, which we will discuss here in a few moments. The election campaign of 1896 ran out through the spring of that year, virtually through Tupper's entire reign as prime minister. And from Manitoba to the Rockies, the implications were momentous. Now, the territories of the prairies in that time had only four members of parliament out of the total of 213. So there was no hope in swinging an election, but there was powerful symbolic value as the territory was huge. And defeating McDonald's candidates or the Conservatives would at least signal that the West was rejecting his old national policy and colonial treatment in generally. So what we have is what we've come to know as a prairie protest vote, and it seems to happen every time we have an election anywhere in Western Canada, and it recurs in our Canadian politics very, very often. The centrists believe this to be a knee-jerk response to misfortune, bad weather, economic conditions, or as we've known lately, the price of oil. Westerners, either rightly or wrongly, see it as a cry against a system that leaves the West wholly invulnerable to exploitation by the central province. And that's as far as I'm going to editorialize on that point. So the electoral events of 1896 would represent that prairie protest. And it would be represented by people like Edmonton's Frank Oliver, an independent, an independent candidate for the parliamentary seat of Alberta, and a rancher by the name of Thomas Cochran, who would run for the Conservatives. As far as the Liberals, though nominally as an independent, Frank Oliver would be seen virtually as the Liberal candidate and, of course, would serve the Liberal Party of Canada in um, the House of Commons. Now, for the West, the key election issues were Ottawa's refusal to allow effective local government high tariffs on crucial imports such as uh, farm machinery, the failure of immigration policies to get sufficient settlers to the slow pace of railway building, and of course the railways, as in this, the Canadian Pacific Railway, steep freight rates on grain and such. Now we have to think a little bit differently than we can now, because the Liberals seem pro-West on all questions. The 1893 policy convention, they denounced the principles of protectionism as radically unsound and unjust to, the West, to Western Canada and championed freer trade with the United States and Britain, lower deficits and lower taxes. Whereas Sir John E. Macdonald's national policy propped up tariffs in order to support um, Eastern Canadian manufacturers of machinery and such. So we have a bit of a, a little bit of a difference in thinking between liberals and conservatives than we do now here in the early 2000s. Now the liberals are in themselves were represented in leadership by Sir by Wilfred Laurier, by Wilfred Laurier, a Montreal lawyer who had actually been a, a one of the local members at least in the Saskatchewan district. So he had some sympathy for the West. The Conservatives ran under Tupper in 1896 on records of territorial expansion, railway and waterway construction, 
and closer ties to Britain and, of course, McDonald's national policy. But like we said, the Conservative Party was in bad shape after five Prime Ministers in as many years. And the Conservatives and Liberals collided in every constituency across Canada. And a third party was making its appearance, the Patrons of Industry, a Farmers' Party. Now, they wouldn't last long in the 1896 election, but in the next 25 years, the farmers politically would form a force in the West and nationally. 1896 was quite the bombastic campaign. Political meetings lasted past midnight, and rival candidates plumbed the depths of their vituperative vocabularies. The media, always partisan in that time, outdistanced them all, their newspapers chiding and lashing at one another in great displays of partisanship. Now, it didn't hurt that Frank Oliver, the candidate, was also the proprietor of the Edmonton Bulletin. The Lethbridge News says, hey, look, there's Frank Oliver advocating some of the self-same policies he spent the last years condemning. The paper helpfully quoted numerous earlier bulletin editorials that Oliver had written. And uh, some of Oliver's columns were very difficult to defend. And uh, here in 2020, from the comfort of time, we see Frank Oliver purely as a racist. And there has been a lot of uh, debate in the Edmonton district, in the what we call the Oliver district in urban Edmonton, on uh, keeping his name in the face of some of his uh, racial and religious views. Oliver's uh, newspaper, The Bulletin, plunged into the Laurier campaign with high partisan favor. Now, across the river in Strathcona, the South Edmonton News looked on appalled, also ridiculing Oliver's speeches. But, of course, we aren't here to talk about the Edmonton Bulletin or the Lethbridge News or the South Edmonton News. We're here to talk about one broadsheet newspaper that exceeded everything else in the West for its raw venom. And as Farley is telling us, it was the outlaw. And it was a product purely of the 1896 federal election campaign, published for the sole purpose of commenting on it. It was, as Farley has told us, it was produced in Scotts Cooley, nine miles west of McLeod. It ran just six issues. Now, the idea of a newspaper in Scotts Cooley makes one wonder. If you don't know where Scotts Cooley is, Hi, Ranger Gorgeous, stepping in here. I misspoke on the original cut. Uh, Scott's Cooley is actually between Pincher Creek and Fort McLeod, and it's um, between Brockett and Fort McLeod in actual actuality on the Piconi Reserve. Now back to the story. You will drive through Scott's Cooley twice as the highway, Crow's Nest Highway 3 rounds through the... Uh, the district and it was named for a man by the name of Bedrock Jim Scott, an old whiskey trader who had actually that had built the first residence, a cabin in Pincher Creek that is now in the area of the fire hall. Scott later became a herder with the uh, what was called the Indian Department in those days and married into the Pecani Nation. So the Coulee uh, on the on the Pecani Reserve is now known as Scott's Coulee. Now, this isn't an idea of a man setting up a laptop somewhere and plunking out a newspaper. Of course, 
publishing a newspaper in those days meant a very heavy piece of press and lead linotype. So I somewhat doubt that anybody lugged the press out to Scott's Cooley just to produce six sheets of a newspaper for a political campaign. So this leads to a mystery of where exactly the outlaw was printed. Was it printed at the McLeod Gazette? Was it printed at the, on the Lethbridge News Presses? Or perhaps in Calgary? It's really hard to say. The outlaw's Latin motto, and forgive me my pronunciations, Cultura veritas fratis indicini, with malice towards all and charity toward none. And its stance was suprapartisan. That meant they hated everybody. And in their own words, we hate and detest the liberals almost more than we despise the conservatives. Since all other papers, as we've said, were the mere tools of party politicians, the outlaw broadened itself as the Vox Populi, the voice of the people, an alternative to the shackled and servile press. It would expose the shams and frauds and rampant hypocrisy that surround us on every side. Unquote. It had, quote, a circulation in this village already in access of the combined circulation of all other Alberta papers, unquote. And that's a bit of a specious claim since there never was a village or a town at Scotts Cooley. Now, of the Tory candidate for Alberta, Lieutenant Thomas Cochran, the outlaw sneered, quote, he has been forced by circumstances to enter a sphere for which he is much fitted as the editor of the McLeod Gazette to conduct the New York Herald. Nature did not think it necessary to bestow on him the gift of expression. Now that posed a problem for the McLeod Gazette, which had positioned itself for the Conservatives. McLeod's sheet had dumped on the man all year, but now as the party candidate, he suddenly had its unreserved support. To the outlaw, this clearly evidenced the hypocrisies of party politics, to which the West's newspapers were not immune. Look, Look at them, them wheel, wheel into, into line. line. In the vote of June 23rd, the Liberals swept in with 117 seats across Canada to the Conservatives' 89. In Alberta, Oliver beat Cochrane. Laurier won his Saskatchewan district. And elsewhere in the West, the results were not quite so decisive. British Columbia elected four Liberals and two Conservatives, Manitoba two Conservatives and two Liberals. But in his final issue, in June 30th, the outlaw published the obituaries of leading Conservatives. His verdict on the Calgary lawyer James Lockheed called him a harmless but windy mortal who spake with feebleness. Then it took him a shot at the Liberals and ran a, high li a list of high-level public appointments of, of local party favorites. And it closed with a few comments on the Alberta media, and in particular, the Calgary Herald. It has ever been a mixture of pretentious mediocrity and asinine stupidity. We should be glad to relieve its cost the result of insanity. But insanity presupposes the existence of intellect. So that's the story of the outlaw, 
as I fumble through a copy myself. And you may be wondering, where can you, where can this, uh, this strange oddity, the outlaw, be read? Well, oddly enough, um, we really know of very few copies uh, in existence. As we said, printed at Scott's Cooley, only six editions ever came out. Even the mighty Glenbow Archives only has four copies. Now, uh, there's an Alberta in the 20th century book came out here a few years ago that mentioned that there was a judge in Calgary that had a complete collection of six. Unfortunately, they didn't name who that was. I'd love to know so that we could at least uh, access a complete version of these. But as we have learned recently, the Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village Archives does have one copy of the outlaw. So that's a very rare find to, uh, to be able to see in a small town archive. But it's uh, very fitting that it should be there as it's uh, closest to where the, uh, the newspaper was uh, so-called, quote, published, unquote, so I have a, a photocopy of that edition that I have in the archives. And if you've got a, a little bit of time at the end, uh, towards the end of this podcast, and if you'd like to hear a little bit of this, um, I'll read some of it off. If you feel that you're done with the podcast and you've heard enough of The Outlaw, well, that's fine. I won't be offended, but I just thought that I would share this 1896 edition from June 30th with you. Now keep in mind, when you're in the 20th century, 19th century rather, we're not in the age of social media. We're in an age when people actually read for for their in, enjoyment. People were actually very, very literate. And uh, when they put a new, a, something into the newspaper, they used a very flowery and very complete language. And uh, that's an art that is completely lost in, uh, in today's journalism. Um, but the funny thing is, is uh, their insults are very highbrow and very, uh, you know, they're, they're very clever in how they, they knock someone down. So uh, I think in the age of social media, it's good to go back and look at some of this, and at least uh, maybe you can learn when, as you're doing your commenting online and somebody takes a shot at you, how to knock them down in a way that they don't even know they've been knocked down. So... Volume 1, number 6, as uh, we have said, this is the last edition of The Outlaw. I'll try one more shot at this Latin uh, masthead. Cortes veritas fraudis intimacy, with malice towards all and charity to none. So I think that's great that, uh, that The Outlaw has this amazing... Uh, ability to look beyond the partisanship and virtually what they are saying is we hate everyone in this election and here we are in 2020 
Uh, we're heading towards an American election, and we've been through a couple of uh, very contentious elections in Canada and in Alberta in general elections, and I really feel for the outlaw. Now, as we get into the indicia, which is usually the publishing information, uh, the outlaw is published every Tuesday at Big Swan Block, Scott's Cooley, by the Scott's Cooley Publishing Company Limited. Subscription, 10 cents per copy. I'd love to know where the Big Swan Block on Scott's Cooley is. Copies of the outlaw can henceforth be procured at the following places. In McLeod, from R.B. Barnes. In Lethbridge, from Robinson & Company. From Pincher Creek, from our good old friend, uh, Henry Ernest Hyde, who was once a mayor of Pincher Creek, uh, as well as a banker and a merchant and many other things. In Calgary, from the Linton Brothers. And the outlaw even got up as far as Edmonton, where you could purchase it from Cannon Company. Down in Cardston, you can pick it up from Allen and & Company. And get this. In Banff, you can buy the Outlaw at the CPR Hotel, which we now know today as the Fairmont Banff Springs Hotel. Pretty splashy. A limited number of advertisements will be accepted. Space is not to exceed one inch, one dollar each insertion. All commission communications must be addressed. Business Manager, Outlaw, Post Office Box... Number 50, McLeod. Ah, we got a hint there. They're picking up their mail in McLeod. Well, maybe they're also sneaking into the McLeod Gazette's pri uh, presses in the night. Or perhaps um, they commissioned the McLeod Gazette to print this themselves, which is very interesting. So that means you have basically two newspapers in the same town fighting over against each other printed on the same press, perhaps. Notice, advertisements that were changed and more after more than once a week will be charged double. Well, since they only had six editions, I don't think they collected many doubles. And uh, as we said, I've, I'll read this verbatim. I mentioned it in the earlier uh, piece. The outlaw has the largest circulation of any paper in southern Alberta's and is consequently the best advertising medium in the country. It's exclusive news. Franchises make the most widely read and influential journal in the West. So there you have it, The Outlaws. Hottest selling newspaper in all of Scott's Cooley. So now we move on to The Outlaws column, the, the obituaries. And who doesn't run to the newspaper to look at the obituaries first? Well, the outlaw was very good and uh, well-renowned for its uh, very barbarous obituaries and didn't seem to mind saying nasty things or good things about the person that had passed, whether they had died or not. And interestingly enough, in this last edition of the outlaw, the outlaw decides to eulogize itself. Died at Scott's Cooley at 4 p.m., Tuesday, 30th June, 1896, The Outlaw, deeply regretted. So don't mind me while I pull this copy up a little bit closer so I can read it better. So, 
This, the fleeting product of a few brains, born into the world at a time when the independence was at a standstill, has come and gone, cherished and enjoyed by the many, pursued with rancorous hatred by the few. In its humble limited sphere, it endeavored to criticize where criticism was plainly proper, and to point out the foibles of all that came within its scope, without fear or favor. Wherever and whenever the political struggle raged, there was the outlaw. For unto that state of life was it called. It endeavored with an un... Pardon me? An unprejaundiced judgment to seize and expatriate upon the weak points of both sides and consider very properly and reasonable that all who mounted the political rostrum were meat. It may have hit some harder than others, but no man is like unto another. Pardon me, sorry for my stumbling. So do we say farewell, and say with tomorrow, short is the life and most of the full of trials and tribulations, and if the outlaw was at times sharp and severe, still it's, we thank it for its brightness and whimsical snap. If it has shown that many an... If it has shown that many one can take his medicine in a manly way, even though at first it was gall and bittery to do so, it was also afforded an insight into the mean, spiteful souls of others. But, and it is a pleasure to write the fact that such few, very few, in this vicinity, fare thee well, soft and sweet, sleep, sleep. Interesting, uh, how jaundiced humor was taken in those days. I especially like that, uh, Endeavored with an unprejaundiced unpre judgment. I don't think I have ever seen that written anywhere. So as we said, the outlaw was well known for its political obituaries. So we'll can, can carry on with a few of these barbed things that the outlaw... Um, decided to eulogize in its last edition, and keep in mind these people haven't actually passed at this point in time. They're just writing the political funeral. So first up, we have died at Cochrane, at his residence of his friends on June 23rd, Admiral T.B.H. Cochrane. In the 48th year of his age and on the eve of his reign, as predicted by Master Turnock and Senator Lougheed, the deceased was attended to the cemetery by only a few borrowing friends, sorrowing friends, sorry, including James Bruno of Pincher Creek, Harry, who recently flopped, and Andrew Shaw, who is still unpaid. See Card's report on Book of Mormons. I'm not sure what that means, but... Uh, I would suppose back in the day, um, it was an inside joke. And as was um, just a call back, Admiral T.B.H. Cochran had been one of the candidates for MP of Alberta. And here's a future politician and a future name uh, guaranteed to be a part of Alberta, Lougheed. 
though grief on account of the decease of an intimate friend, Senator Lockheed of Calgary, he was buried with orange ceremonies. And what that meant, he was a, a member of the Orange Lodge. The deceased was born of poor but dishonest parents at Arthabasca Landing, and throughout his whole lifetime gave evidences of general debility. Under the strain of intense excitement, he rallied and on one or two occasions spoke of feebleness on political issues, but succumbed to the fatal verdict. The outlaw regrets to record the demise of a harmless but windy mortal. Immortus il nisi bonum. Boy, the outlaw sure liked, 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 loved its Latin. Interesting that I also find that many of the, uh, the words in the outlaw are spelled without use, which gives, leads me to, uh, to believe that the editors were likely Americans. Oh, Costigan, John Costigan, Queen's Council, departed this life peacefully after he had heard of his illustrious father's election. He had no regrets at leaving a scene of woe, only that George Lavasseur of Pincher Creek had been ungrateful and had not the education to appreciate his excellent command of the French lingo. He was buried with Masonic art. Sorry. He was buried with Masonic honors, and his disease was contracted at the Hotel de Wolf Cardston. I believe another inside joke there. Nolan, and of course this is the famous lawyer, defense lawyer, Patty Nolan. Patrick Nolan of Calgary, barrister, passed away peacefully according to a message from Billy Grant, the Alberta Hotel Calgary, which was forwarded from Edmonton. He was born in the Protestant faith, he was born in the Protestant faith and always spoke for free trade and direct ta taxation. He was buried in the vault of the Calgary Brewery, the LAS Dispensary. Excuse me, I have to turn the paper over. Attending the ceremonies. Chief Cross of Montreal and Macmillan of Aaron and sorrowing friends' attendance. Thomas Stone of the Knickerbockers and Ham fame had given notice that he will claim the remains and pickle them according to new process with creosote. The back pieces sell at 13, whereas the belly, which is larger, sells at 11 bucks. Scarce. Taylor, Eddie Taylor of Calgary, who passed away in the manner in which innocent men leave this sphere. Where questioned by the spirit, when questioned by his spiritual advisor, he claimed he did not know whether he belonged to the Pro Pellicutum store, that means the Hudson's Bay Company, long story there, or to Admiral Cochrane, but with preferences for former, as the past was easily collected. Pro Pellicutum was the motto of the Hudson's Bay Company. Thompson. Homestead Inspector, Mr. Guelph Thompson, came to an untimely end on the 23rd instant. He was of opinion that if he had any liberal blood in him, he would open the, varus, open the veins and discharge it. Upon in investigation, there was not enough of any other kind to sustain his party or himself, and passed away in the arms of Kootenay Brown and Dr. Kennedy. The remains were followed to Guelph by Bob Milvane, weight recorder, and Louis Hammond. 
We mourn a friend and reasonable in politics, fair in horse racing, and keen in catching wolves on Sunday. So there you go, Graham Thompson, a pal of Kootenay Brown. Now the outlaw had parting words for its uh, brother newspapers in Alberta, of which it had uh, rivaled during the 1896 election. So to our confreres, in taking a fond farewell of our journalistic contemporaries, it becomes a pr privilege to say a last word. And we won't have another chance, and as duty to the public, inclination alike prompt us, we must be pardoned for making it what our dear brethren of the pulpit call a word in season. To the papers of Alberta, generally, we must say that we trust the recent campaign has taught them a lesson of humility and that they cannot run counter to the feeling of the country without reaping a rich reward of discredit and disgrace. Of the Calgary Herald, we cannot say it too strongly. It has been a mixture of pretentious mediocrity and asinine integrity, but in the closing days of the election campaign just over, it exceeded itself in its frantic efforts to, ex to assist its master. By its low faults and uncalled-for attacks on the personal character of Frank Oliver, it brought down a on itself the wrath of even Calgary Conservatives, and its editor was only saved from being burned in effigy by the generosity of political opponents. We should be glad to believe its course, the result of insanity, but insanity proposes the existence of intellect. I think we've had this quote before. And of that there has been no trace in the columns of the Herald. How does it find itself now? Party gone, candidate gone, boodle gone, reputation, if say, gone. Nothing left but mortgages and unsatisfied subscribers. We leave it rather in pity than in anger. The Calgary Tribune may be dismissed with a word. Since Turnock left, it is utterly useless and absolutely harmless. The old gentleman who is responsible for it should be told to sit down and let someone else take the helm before many moons have passed. Its circulation will be represented by a vanishing point. And on that, they, I think they were true. The Calgary Tribune uh, didn't last much longer than the outlaw. The Lethbridge News, falsely called news, for it never has any, is as dull as ever. And not even the election excitement could disturb its sluggish soul. We advise its owners to get Swamate in from Cardston to run it. Even Swa's absurdities would be better than nothing. And I'm unclear at who Swamate is supposed to be. It's in, uh, sort of in quotes. So they're obviously alluding to somebody. And now our own Gazette, and they speak of the McLeod Gazette here, our good old Gazette, our sweet thing, old thing in newspapers, we bid thee adieu with almost a tear in our eye. The dear old crock means well, we know, but is so unstable. It is funny, so at times, perhaps unconsciously so, even still funny, in its efforts to produce, prove black, white, and that white is black. Latterly, however, it has ceased to be even funny. 
and the public is beginning to ask what it what it is paying two dollars a year for. Certainly not for Denham McLean's locals, picked up around the golf links. And the quarter column of twaddle contributed by the WCTU, and that's that's the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Twas not so named in the contract. Old age is honorable, but a decrepit, disreputable old age insisting on honor being shown while bestowing nothing is an anomaly that people won't stand. Wills take a tumble, friend Gazette, if not an unglorious death, a death without money to pay funeral expenses, a death unswept, unhonored, and unsung is thy inevitable portion. Adios. So that sounds like the outlaw is telling the McLeod Gazette, okay, boomer. And now we come to a column, and I would be remiss to, uh, to forget about the outlaw's correspondence of news in Pincher Creek, and much of this has to do with the election as well. And this column uh, is only bylined from our special correspondent, so it's hard to say who that might be. Election day passed off very quietly and dryly in the creek. That means the bars were closed. Although a few of Jack Clark's supporters seem to have been able a little rustle a little of the true election influence, which of course he's speaking of liquor. Cochrane's small majority here can be attributed to the effect the fact that the hotel was closed, much to the disappointment of Billy Doby, who saw several cool hundreds in sight. So that's of course is William Doby in the Arlington Hotel. We might in time get used to the prohibition rule, the same as we might that of other dry and warm climates that we know of, but we don't want to experiment with either states of affairs for a long while. Lord, my throat is dry yet. Chief Justice Morden's heart is on the ground, for he was expecting to get a patent for the rest of the country if his party had remained in power, but will now have to be contented with the two or three sections he has already. And what we read into that is today, if you look at the Pincher Creek and the streets to the north of the creek, they are all named for members of Morden's family. And Morden was one of the early settlers on Pincher Creek. And virtually everything north of the creek, he had homesteaded and had eventually carved into the lots that are now the the residences on the immediate side of the creek. So I think the outlaw was a little bit uh, unhappy that he owned so much land there. Jack Heron, and this is, uh, I assume to be probably John Heron, the former mounted policeman. Jack Heron has sought the, the seclusion that his ranch grants and is now busy explaining how he worked for Oliver, which he did, and advancing reasons that are beautiful for the defeat of the Tories. He is also finding out how much it cost him to be agent. And it's worth noting that in the future, John Heron will run for and will become the Member of Parliament for the McLeod District when the Alberta District is uh, subdivided. The formula for Dr. Mead's favorite prescription for sales is said to be two ounces of gin, dash of bitters. Caution. To be taken in broken do doses or that effect is disastrous. 
Messrs. Redpath and Hogan, prominent cattle rancher of the district, have disposed of their cattle and invested the proceeds in polo ponies, sticks, and balls, and have been fortunate enough to secure the services of that distinguished expert, Teddy Warren, as instructor, and they expect to shine on the first. So I guess that alludes to the, uh, to the North Fork uh, polo team. Electricity has done the for the streetcar. Hmm. Sorry. Electricity is done for the streetcar horses in the east, so Mormon Bill, Bob Campbell, Remy Bove, and Bullock Esquire availed themselves of the low prices to import a carload and are now training the old trunks for the horses, for the races, pardon me, on the 1st of July. So I guess they've uh, brought in some, um, some horses from the east and are... Uh, and are getting ready to, to run them for the July races. Mr. Bovey also has a few Clydes that he intend to start, and of course that by that he means Clydesdale horses. And those won't be racing horses, those will be pulling horses. S.T. Jacks Esquire paid a short visit to the creek last week, but as Charlie Geddes was not known to have a time with him, and Alex Eaton, a shade shaky after the last, he managed to remove his boots before retiring. Now the next uh, item refers to James Bruno, who one of the founding mounted policemen. In connection with J.B. Bruno, late inspector of weights and measures, he remarked that it was his own money, and it cost him 2%, that he was blowing in McLeod, but that he did not know it at the time, or he might have been, not have been so liberal, but played his usual waiting game. So, uh... The outlaws accusing Mr. Bruno of uh, of losing some money and that perhaps was not his own. Mr. Smith, and I assume this means Charlie Smith, wishes, uh, sorry, this is a faded copy, uh, Char wishes to thank Charles Kettles for the very able assistance considered at the fire and for the generous manner in which he allowed everybody to do the work. Also for the gracious ways in which he retired to bed as soon as he ascertained that his house was out of danger. Dr. Smith also wishes to thank the gentleman who woke... Oh, sorry, this is Dr. Smith, not Charlie Smith. Pardon me. Dr. Smith also wishes to thank the gentleman who woke Mr. Kettles up and told him that he could, upon sleeping, that his fire was now out. And since the burning of his house, Dr. Smith was in, engage, has engaged a suite of rooms next to T. Eaton's Traveler at the Alberta Hotel. And the rest of the boarders would feel obliged if these two gentlemen retire a little earlier and not keep them awake with their auguries. I think they might mean something else, but I'm not going to say what that is. Don't let don't let it trouble affect you this way, Doctor. And the column ends is why is the wildcat rancher like Rome? Because all roads lead to it. So that seemed like a very uh very litigious uh, sort of column in which Charles Kettles is uh, snarkily being blamed or, or not thanked.
for a fire in uh, that happened in Pincher Creek. And Charles Kettles, uh, speaking of Mr. Morden owning the north side of the creek, well, Charles Kettles seemed to have owned everything south of the creek. So the outlaw is definitely scattering its insults. So did the outlaw have classified ads? Well, of a sort. Usually if they were trying to take a slam at somebody they didn't like. Un Under a column marked Situations Wanted. Wanted, a position as Teamster on the ranch, no credentials, will work first month for board. Apply to CFB Coney Bear, Lethbridge. Coney Bear was a lawyer in Lethbridge. Wanted, a situation as bartender. First class recommendation guaranteed. Mixing whiskey and soda specialty. Amos Rowe, Calgary. Wanted, a situation on a ranch as interpreter for Indians passing. Credentials from Dave Mills and Harry Dunbar. Salary not wanted. Apply to Harry Nash, Pegan Reserve. Harry Nash was the um, agent on the Pecani Reserve. They called it the Pegan Reserve at that point in time. Wanted a position in a livery stable. Apply to C.N. Campbell. Halifax Papers, please copy. Apparently the outlaw thought that they would be uh, being picked up in Nova Scotia. Wanted situation as liquor dis tester in distillery. Willie Hudson. Woo. Wanted any situation under the less under the liberal administration. Salary not so much an object as a knowledge of the business. Reference by permission. Reverend J.P. Grant. And, and Harry Hyde of Pincher Creek. Wanted. A position in the United States as probate judge. Have had several years' experience at the bar. Referenced by permission, Dan Horan, Dun Donald Spicer, and B.L. Walters. Applied to Sandy McDonald, Calgary. Wanted situations as, dis as deacon in a small country church and board with the parishioners. Signed, Gosnell. Land of the Inland Revenue Department, Calgary. And here's a snide one. This is to a politician and merchant in Lethbridge. Wanted, a reputation. Signed, Harry Bentley, Lethbridge. Wanted, situation as a cook. Long experience. References General Middleton and Bremner of Battleford. Signed, Hader Reed. Hader Reed was, at that point in time, the... Uh, Indian commissioner for basically what was uh, was called Indian Affairs at that point in time and he was a very very controversial man and uh, it's probably a good subject for another podcast someday now under a title marked McLeod Items the outlaw speaks of Robert Evans, alias Fighting Bob, has been spending a few pleasant days in McLeod, that is to say pleasant for himself, for as far as the rest of the town was concerned. The genial vet was apparently willing to take them all out one at a time. We ought really to secure a proper town patrol. So I guess Fighting Bob was on quite of a spree in the streets of McLeod in 1896. 
And then we have a letter from Mr. William Bolin Pocklington of Regina, formerly of this district. And uh, Pocklington had been formerly the, uh, the Indian agent on the Blood Reserve. Pocklington has received the following typewritten letter from the Prince of Wales in answer to his congratulatory cablegram on the success of His Royal Highness at the Derby with Parsimian. I, I assume Parsimian is a horse. It reads, and in my best Cockney, Sandringham, June 8th, 1896, my dear Pock. Many thanks for your kind congratulations. You always told me so to stay with it, and I should eventually get there. It has taken me a long time, but I've got. How are you settling along? Aberdeen speaks well of you. Says you're quite juvenile still and never ready to play Bo Peep with the girls. Just like you. Don't forget to look up the next trip. Look us up next trip. Saw Wopsy of the Guardy last week. She's all right. You remember her. Tall, dark, very superior. She's married. Well, goodbye. Love from the missus. Your old chum. Signed, Wales. The Duke desires to be remembered. Uh, that's uh, a bit of a shot at uh, Edward, the Prince of Wales, uh, son of Queen Victoria, who in about five years' time from this writing would eventually be the king of uh, the British Empire, uh, King Edward, who f our uh, recent departed hotel has been named. And uh, I guess the uh, the key in there is, I don't know what Pocklington's association with the Prince of Wales was, but the prince was uh, noted to be a bit fancy, with a bit of a fancier of the ladies. So that's uh, quite the statement to make at this time. Now, even in the book review column, books received for review, the outlaw found ways to take shots at people that it wanted to take shots at. Our Boys by P. McCartan. The art of the act of making the art of making oneself beloved by G. W. McGill. Social etiquette or pointers for the uncultured by Malcolm Mackenzie, B. A. Queens. Reveries of a Teacher by Henry Hyde, and of course that's our uh, Henry Hyde of Pincher Creek. And in quote, and in uh, brackets, there is another work by the same author called The Amazing Marriage, which will be published on the 6th of July next. And I guess this is a, uh, a way to saying that uh, Henry Hyde's uh, nuptials are pending within the few few weeks. So that's quite the way to make a wedding announcement. The Maverick Fund and How to Disperse of It by R. Duffy, Black Dick, and Judge Rulo. Now, what the Maverick Fund refers to is uh, what was done with stray cattle that were found unbranded, that were usually sold, and there was always a bit of a controversy in where the, uh, the funds for the Mavericks would go to. It was supposed to go to the Territorial Stock Associations, but sometimes I guess it found its way into other pockets. I Have Troubles of My Own or The Man with Five Housemaids and One Star Border by E.J. Mitchell. How I Crawled from Beneath the Snow or There's No Place Like Home by John Heron. Guide to Courtship by H. St. George Stepney. The Heavenly Twins by R.B. Barnes. And we wound up with the book of Buried Treasures by G.A. Kennedy, Arthur of... Author... <laughs> 
of a foul proceedings or the tail of a headless hen. And I think that refers to Dr. Kennedy, the mounted police surgeon, and his prowess in hunting um, wild game. And speaking of mounted police surgeon, we end with a column here of uh, where they speak of uh, Dr. Leverett George de Weber, who was a uh, mounted police surgeon in Fort McLeod and later set up in private practice in McLeod and uh, in Lethbridge and became a, uh, would become a, a minister in the uh, Rutherford cabinet in the very first provincial uh, legislature and uh, also a senator of Canada. So this column in L, Dr. L. George de Weber, the Lethbridge liberal, was in town this week. Our representatives immediately corralled him and the estimable position unburdened himself to their sympathetic ears. It appears that all this trouble which the Conservative Party has brought upon itself could have been avoided. The worthy Lethbridge Medico, having written to Tupper, asking for a little government situation, stating that if he got it, he would work the skin off his teeth in his efforts for the Conservative Party. But if he didn't, why, look out. Well, he didn't, and now look what has happened to the party. Where is it? Where is the doctor? In Lethbridge. Where does he want to be? In the Yukon. Will he get there? Ah, there's the point. And it sort of looks like to him that uh, Mr. DeWeber was probably looking to get the uh, collector of customs job that D.W. Davis apparently had in the Yukon at that point in time. So that's going to do it for this look at the outlaw here on Radio KBPV. I hope you've enjoyed it, if you're still with me. And it's uh, definitely a capsule look into a the writing of a different time and uh, journalism of a different time. And um, it is both different and yet the same. Um, I think most of us grew up with a time of... Uh, of noted journalistic integrity that we usually got from our newspapers and, uh, and other electronic sources. But uh, it seems within the last few years, in um, you can blame partisan politics, you can blame social media, and the, you hear the word fake news going around quite a bit. And if, if you go back to... Uh, our, one of our podcasts with David Halton, he's, he speaks a lot of this and uh, the change back to uh, some journalism that is perhaps not so trustworthy. But uh, as I talk about this here on March 16th of 2020, we are under a various situation uh, with the global pandemic of uh, COVID-19, the coronavirus where I think the world and the populace really needs to have extremely accurate information and to only be listening to accurate information. And that's a challenge as well with, uh, with partisan media and um, some of the politicians that we have at this, this time. I, I'm not 
going to be as brave as the outlaw and say names. But it's also uh, indicative that these politicians, you know, stop playing their games in a crisis like this and buddy up to the punch and get out accurate information and accurate instructions to people so that they know what they do in something like this. Um, we're not facing, you know, you know, some economic thing that'll come and go. We're facing a very serious thing onto people's health and onto people's lives. There's a, a number of people have died globally and if we don't take care, things are going to be uh, very, very extraneous. So it, it, it's, it's good that we put our thinking caps on when we're looking on social media things and even in, um, in watching the behavior of some of our officials. So, um, so everybody be careful. Be good out there. And uh, I guess I don't even want to think about what would happen with coronavirus if the outlaw were still in existence. But uh, with social media and websites, we have many, many outlaws that will be, for its own purposes, uh, spreading conspiracy theories and just um, bad advice and bad information. So I guess the secret is is uh, to watch for very official news, to be cautious, not scared, and to be not taken in um, by things that uh, that just don't seem right. And I guess one of the things I, I go to one of my favorite journalists of the last few years, speaking of fake news, was John Stewart of The Daily Show. And um, I hope he comes back during this crisis because we certainly need him. But he always he said, if you smell something, say something. If the news just doesn't seem right, ask someone who knows. And we have some very, a very, very powerful computers, but we have the most powerful computer that we have is between our ears. And sometimes we just need to stop Turn off the noise and just listen. Do that thing in our heads. And if I was writing The Outlaw today, I would have a picture of a brain on the front page and it would have a label on it and it would say, Bullshit Detector. And that's what it's there for. It's for folks. So, thank you for listening. If you've gotten this far, uh, I appreciate it. And let's have some let's be careful out there and in the meantime let's take this time to just educate ourselves there are lots of books out there there are lots of things to read fiction good fiction histories good histories you might even get through uh the 2014 edition of prairie grass to mountain pass if you have that kind of time but uh, for now, Ranger Gord signing off, and let's be careful out there, and we're all in this together. We're pulling for you. Thank you for listening to Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. 
This episode was researched and written by historians Farley Wood and Gord Tolton. This podcast is recorded and engineered by Gord Tolton. Episodes can be found at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcatcher. Visit our website at www.kootenaybrown.ca. Kootenay is spelled K-O-O-T-E-N-A-I. Also, visit and join our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on our museum or even better, visit us at 1037 Beverly McLaughlin Drive in beautiful Pincher Creek, Alberta. 